Hi, and welcome to Decoding Culture podcast on This Is HTD. As this is the first episode of Decoding Culture, I thought I'd give the listeners a short summary of what it's all about. The podcast will focus on the importance that culture plays in all areas of business and society, from how it shapes organizations to how it influences consumer experience, design, and larger societal trends. By exploring culture through anthropology and ethnography, the podcast will give listeners new perspectives on innovation, marketing, leadership, organizational culture, design, consumer behavior, and also broader trends. Decoding culture will include guests from across disciplines that are in different ways influenced by culture and anthropology in order to provide multiple perspectives on how culture shapes human behavior. My name is John Curran and I'm your host. I'm a business anthropologist, executive coach and CEO of JC and Associates, which is a consultancy that explores how culture shapes organizations and consumer behavior. For this first episode, I spoke to Dr. Letitia Mimoun, who is a lecturer in marketing at Cas Business School in London. We explored how her research interests are influenced by anthropological theory, especially around liminality, and how this shapes areas of consumer behavior and culture. This is something she calls consumer liminality, and she's going to talk about this more in the podcast. Listening to Dr. Mamoon's thinking around this was enlightening because she raises an important point. For example, if there is an emerging trend where consumers could always be in the liminal phase. In other words, they are always in transition. She links liminality here with Bauman's theory of liquid society, where there could be a permanent liminality. Therefore, no one's really in a fixed state. We also explored how Dr. Mamoon is influenced by anthropological and interpretive methodologies to help generate research data for her work. I will also be giving all my guests the Symbolic Anthropologist's Notebook to study any topic or company they wish to. Dr. Mamoon was the first to accept the notebook. And believe me, it is really worth listening to find out where she's going to take it. Let's get into the conversation. Well, hello, Dr. Mimoon. Welcome to Decoding Culture. Thanks and good afternoon. So one of the things that would be really good to kind of to start off with is getting a bit of an understanding about you and your role as an academic in marketing here at CAS Business School. How did you get into academia and also kind of the idea of marketing? So I started after my studies uh, as an um, assistant product manager in a big fast-moving consumer good company. We were selling dairies and I got after a time a bit frustrated because we never had the time to ask questions. So, for example, at the time we had a big packaging project where we'll be introducing front of pack labeling. It's when you put the nutritional label at the front of packs and we were very afraid that it would change consumer attitude toward our products, but we didn't have the time to ask about why and how and uh, in general, the evolution of the market around nutritional labeling. And it is because I wanted to ask all these questions, the why, the how, the how individuals are situated into structures that I got into academia. Okay, so, so you studied first in France, is that right? Uh, yes, I did my PhD at HEC Paris in France. And I joined CAS Business School last year in September. Oh, fantastic. And what was the PhD area looking at? So my PhD was in consumer culture theory, uh, which is a field of uh, marketing which looks more at the symbolic, experiential, 
ideological meanings of consumption. And uh, specifically, I was looking at consumer liminality and how it might be evolving in contemporary society. Okay. Has that been something, this idea of kind of consumer culture and liminality, is that now part of your interest within academia and marketing? I would say that's even central to my interest uh, nowadays. Okay, so those two big chunks, and we're going to talk about those in a bit. What type of research areas are you exploring at the moment? Well, maybe I should start with the context, because that's what's most accessible. So I'm looking at a number of contexts uh, which are related to consumer liminality, such as flexible lifestyle, Mm -hmm. like the one that freelancers or independent contractors might have. I'm also looking at different forms of access-based consumption as well as the lifestyle of recurrent migrants. Does that relate to the kind of, are you exploring things like then the gig economy or is that coming into that? Or I could say that the gig economy is coming into that. It's interesting that when I wanted to look at consumer liminality, I started with migrants, but then I move on to study uh, flexible workers, including those who are part of the gig economy. And what we are looking at is how uh, ideological and structural influence, such as those which are carried by the gig economy phenomenon, influence uh, consumer culture and consumption. Okay. You've mentioned the concept of liminality in relation to consumers and consumer culture. Yeah. So that's setting off kind of lovely images in my mind of of the anthropological concept of liminality. And I'm just wondering, what does liminality mean for you in relation to what you do as an academic? We, in consumer research, start the same as everyone when we are talking about liminality with its anthropological roots. That of Turner, who studied uh, rites of passage Mm -hmm. and called liminality the middle phase, such as when, for example, adolescents become adults in a small-scale society or tribe. And then with uh, what Turner explored and defined liminality as a betwixt and between phase, this kind of transitional extraordinary and in-between stage or phase uh, which allows all these transitions and transformation. And we are using that to understand consumers and consumer culture. So as consumer researcher, we look at liminality, for example, when we are studying life transitions of consumers. For example, we are looking at how possessions might help a high schooler become university student and uh, let go of their attachment to the high school and family and even childhood and move on to something which will conduct them to entering adulthood. And we saw that possessions are central. You have to let go some of the possessions which encode your adolescent identity and adapt transitional possession, which will then help you uh, move on in a way and transform. So is liminality, uh, you mentioned Victor Turner, the anthropologist, Mm -hmm. is liminality a kind of stage in transition where you are neither before, you're neither afterwards? It's a kind of, I don't know, you're in a no man's land. The traditional view of liminality assumes that there will be a beginning and an ending. And 
A big part of my doctoral dissertation was to try and understand how we can think of liminality in consumer research when we are more and more entering what Bowman has called a liquid society, where our social structures are changing so fast that they cannot really serve to anchor identity long-term projects. In this idea, there might not be any more ending to these transitions that consumers are going through. What we saw is that even if we could argue with Bowman that there might be, based on Bowman, that there might be some form of permanent liminality, such a state is very difficult to achieve. This is really interesting. So looking at Bowman, this idea of liquid modernity, right? You're arguing then that there's a potential to be constantly in the liminal phase or the liminal space. Is that mm -hmm. right? In a way, yes and no. <laughs> My research looks at uh, flexible workers, and in particular, consumers who have a flexible lifestyle. These are individuals uh, who are often live in big cities like London, and they have a flexible work, they are freelancer, for example, and a flexible home, for example, a flat share. And this includes really more people that you can imagine, as nowadays, between 20 and 30% of our population in London is involved in flexible work. That's a lot. That's a lot. So... According to uh, research in organizational science, people who are engaged in flexible work could enter permanent liminality, or what they call permanent liminality. This idea that you are constantly transitioning, never stopping the transition. I'm really interested in this because I think, you know, we have this traditional sense that we move from one state to the next, okay? And this, even this idea of change and change management is, you might have liminality as part of it, but you're going to get somewhere at the end of it. So it's quite kind of innovative, quite radical what you're saying here, that people who work, or some people that the 20 to 30 percent, could potentially find themselves always in that space. But to kind of maybe be a bit devil's advocate here, if they're choosing to be in that space, surely then that's the kind of end game. They've gone through it. The first thing is, can there be this permanent liminality? My argument is that in contradiction to some finding in organizational science, if you look at consumer lifestyle, and not only as your life within an organization, it's nearly unmanageable. It is too exhausting, too demanding to be permanently liminal. Okay. And as a result, consumers tend to re-engage, re-encourage in some kind of stable identity. So that might be answering the first part of your question. The second thing is that if they choose to be permanently liminal, is this an end game? And I think that here I want to focus on the notion of choice. Because what we are looking at are dynamics of empowerment and disempowerment. On the one side, you might be choosing to seek constantly change, flexibility, uncertainty. But on the other side, you have structural forces which force you in a situation where that seems to be the most logical choice. Mm -hmm. So you cannot really say that consumers who engage in a flexible lifestyle, or at least who seek a flexible lifestyle, are fully choosing to embrace this kind of permanent liminality. They are rather answering to the structural force of the market, which does not necessarily allow them to seek a stable job, a stable home, by seeking and embracing change. That's, I mean, I guess that's one of the big political arguments against kind of the gig economy and brands associated with it. So the Ubers of the world, where 
you know, they also you could do a snap kind of ethnographic study of Uber drivers and they'll talk <laughs> about flexibility, right? But what you're talking about is actually there isn't stability in relation to things like rights and those areas as well. And they are, it's societal structures that are forcing them into that space. Well, I'm not saying that it's bad or evil or anything. There is no moral judgment here. I'm just uh, pointing out that there is a tension between the fact that structural forces such as the way deregulation, globalization, etc., the way rights are changing, which encourage people to pursue flexibility. And at the same time, that choosing and seeking a liminal lifestyle might be empowering in some way. Right. Because it brings an ideological component to this situation of uncertainty. You are not simply being in an uncertain state, which is purely the no man's land of liminality, as you mentioned it before, the yeah. fact that you have no idea of where you will be tomorrow and how much you will make, what will be your income, will you be able to afford your bills, but also that now you are embracing this uncertainty as something which has ideological value. Okay, can you develop that a bit? That's quite interesting, the ideological value. Uh, this is what we see, for example, when we study the consumer lifestyle behind it. We see that uh, you can embrace some consumption practices, such as uh, constantly changing your hobbies, seeking uh, novelties with uh, new brands, new restaurants, all these new marketing practices all the time to bring a different side to increase your flexibility because you are not only enduring it in your work, for example, but also embracing it as a, a source of status, for example. So it goes back to your point about societal structures moving really quickly. And I'm just wondering about brands there that, you know, you mentioned. And I guess what it kind of conjured up in my mind, if we look at something around well-being and healthy living and, you know, vegan plant-based burgers versus... The, it does feel that there's a pace that it's you either have to follow or you don't. And who are you in that space? That's quite interesting. And I think that this goes back to this idea of liquid consumption, which has been introduced by Bardi and Eckhart, who were working on uh, Bowman's theory. The idea is that uh, to uh, answer this constant change of society, one of the ways to do so is to engage in consumption, which is increasingly ephemeral and access-based and dematerialized. And being able to access and uh, to make the most of this type of consumption might be what distinguish the elites of uh, the current constantly changing world. You also mentioned this idea, which feels quite traditional, I think, you know, how anthropologists think around this idea of social status mm -hmm. and the kind of cultural artifacts that we consume. So if, if things are moving so quickly, how do we, the big we, the consumers and cultural groups, how do we make social status? Ah, that's a very broad question. Okay. And it probably has many answers, and I know quite a few researchers who are looking at that. So I will probably give an answer which is uh, quite specific to my context. Brilliant. Uh, going back to my flexible consumer lifestyle, what we find is that if you have flexibility, you can look at it from the point of view that we used to look at it for a long time. So if you are 35 years old or 30 years old, that you still live in a flat share, that you do not own property, and that you don't have a certain job, not a permanent job or anything. If you look at it from a traditional viewpoint of solidity, you might be at the bottom of the social status hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? 
if you look at it from a different viewpoint and the viewpoint that many uh, flexible consumers adopt, thanks to this flexibility ideology, which is increasingly prevalent in the marketplace, you kind of look at it as a source of social status. Because uh, you are able to embrace change and uncertainty and being able to embrace change and uncertainty is increasingly value in society. I see. So in a way, you become the expert. Yes, exactly. So it's about the actual lifestyle then, not just what you're consuming in relation to brands that's giving you the social status. It's kind of who you are and how you live your life. Well, that's the point of lifestyle, really. They integrate the constellation of brand and products. And in the case of flexible lifestyle, this constellation is constantly changing. But are we going to see this as a norm, this notion of flexible lifestyle, right? Is the concept itself part of liminality to a new kind of norm somewhere around societal structures? Or are we going to see this as this is what young people coming out of university or whatever will have to embrace? I mean, we see this as a lot in business, for example, business books. It's all about startup, lean, agile, et cetera, et cetera. It's coming from this almost T-shirt jeans <laughs> philosophy, right, of flexibility and you know, people working from home and, you know, so I'm just wondering where will it be sitting in the cultural space? So there are different things and they should not be exactly confused. On the one hand, there is the ideology of flexibility. This is a broad market-based ideology and it is increasingly prevalent in many different spaces of life. The idea that we need flexibility, that flexibility should be valued over values uh, such mm -hmm. as reliability or stability or ownership. That's true and that's quite prevalent. So it is increasingly likely that uh, flexibility be valued in many different spaces and contexts. Okay. This is why you find it in some business. This is why you find it in some lifestyle. This is why you find it in well-being talks and healthcare, etc. Something else is the flexible lifestyle in itself, which is building on this ideology in reaction to structural changes to allow some of those who might otherwise feel disempowered by those structural changes to be uh, once again empowered. And this is what I study. And I argue that uh, while it might not become a norm, because I cannot make this kind of predictions based on my data, we see that this is not limited to young adults. This is not something that university students only engage in. It's not something which is only in their 20s. The proof of that is that in my research, we are looking at people who are 30 years old and older to avoid that argument. So what then, if we look at that cohort, right, the 30 plus, what would we be seeing then, you know, I've kind of framed the stereotypical 20 plus startup mentality, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, all cool. And it's kind of, like it all feels and looks nice, right? But what does this older cohort, what are they experiencing? Or what does their flexible life look like if it isn't just confined to the younger? The point of their structural life is that uh, what we used to see as marker of adulthood, for example, owning a home, purchasing one's home, having a permanent job, getting married, uh, staying in one place for a long time, all these things are in a way dissolving. It's not simply that they are postponed. And I think this is what you were mentioning initially, you know, young adults, 20 plus, who are experimenting in order to accumulate social and cultural capital before settling down. The point is that these things, not owning, 
relying rather on access, on rental, on things which are much more liquid and flexible. Uh, not necessarily having a single job, but changing constantly of careers, is disseminating throughout age group, especially among people who adopt the flexible lifestyle. So this will also be reflected in their consumption. And we do see less attachment on owning products. So you have to rethink luxury symbol. If the luxury is not to own a second home or to own an extremely expensive car, because these are things that you cannot carry. And if you have to constantly change home and change work, you need to be able to carry. This is where the liquid consumption kind of concept comes into play. If I'm right, then, that's really interesting. So you don't see having the nice car or the status markers as the key point of your kind of social capital. It's more about how you navigate, negotiate that flexible world, right? The things you follow, the things you do, rather than the things you buy. Yes, and uh, while my research is not necessarily on status and uh, luxury, other researchers who also study liquid consumption have shown that there are many other ways to express status in a liquidifying society, such as for experiences and through uh, different lifestyle markers, as well as the ability to adapt to trends all the time. It sounds, having to do that, quite tiring. <laughs> if, if, you are, if you're constantly having to do that, it, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Goffman's idea of the kind of impression management and the, the performative aspect of displaying who you are. Well, you know, we are all acting in a way to, you know, manage the impression that over will have of ourselves. So apparently we are all good players at that. It is exhausting, and I think that's uh, why the argument of permanent liminality, it's one of the main weaknesses of the argument of permanent liminality. It's the fact that we have limited resources, limited time, and at an individual level and throughout one life, so when looking at consumers rather than at workers, it is difficult to sustain such a rhythm of change, out of the ordinariness, constant transitioning. I want to quickly move on then to, again, you talked about your field of research and your interest areas and being an academic. So how do you source data? What are your methodologies? I mean, you, you're kind of influenced by the anthropological theory here. And I'm just trying to think about how do you understand these groups that you're, mm -hmm. you're studying? I'm uh, deeply influenced by anthropological and sociological theory and by the field of research, which is called consumer culture theory. As part of this field, we often rely on interpretive methodology. This will include, in my case, different interview methods, such as auto-driving, which relies on um, picture elicitation, but also more classical interview methods, such as uh, semi-structured interviews. I use different sort of observations online and offline, including participant observation. I have used a number of archival methodology uh, where I have been, for example, analyzing advertising, analyzing uh, media data, and as well on another Uh, research project, sometimes we have two big data sets, uh, especially when we rely primarily on media data. In those cases, we tend to enhance our qualitative approach with uh, automated content analysis. 
So here we bring a bit of a mixed method approach where we combine a qualitative analysis of a subset of data with more quantitative and computer-based analysis of larger data sets. I'm thinking when you, for example, analyze media data over 30 years, the limited capacities of our brains mean that we kind of need the help of computers. But it sounds like then you've got this fantastic kind of cultural toolbox of methodologies, flexibility in its own right there, <laughs> right? But um, one quick point as well, you mentioned when we were kind of setting up that there's a specific kind of way or kind of definition in a way of understanding consumer culture. Or mm-hmm. what consu- and how would you define consumer culture? Consumer culture as a field of research in marketing appeared at the end of the 80s in reaction to the more rationalistic and utilitarian view of consumers that researchers used to have at the time. The point was to look at different sides of consumer behaviors, such as the experiential side, the more ideological, sociocultural sides of consumption. And as a result of that, we have started looking at um, culture not necessarily as a unified, homogeneous um, system with shared value, a shared way of life, but rather to look at the multiplicity of meanings which can shape consumers' understanding and experience of the realities in uh, which they live. So we're coming to the end. I mean, thank you. I think we could literally probably do a whole series of podcasts on (laughs) this idea of liquid consumption and because I can see so many different strands how it kind of shapes these ideas the kind of social structures as you mentioned my last question which I'm asking all guests on the podcast is I'm going to kind of give you hand you over now the kind of symbolic anthropological ethnographic notebook and say to you if you want to take that notebook and go and study anywhere where would that be and why Well, that's a big question. Recently, I've been interested in the darker side of those liminal lifestyles, where consumers might be failing at uh, sustaining this form of permanent liminality. As we have mentioned, it's quite challenging and exhausting. So one of the contexts I would be interested is to look at digital nomad, but uh, more specifically those who have failed or come back from a digital nomad life and looking a bit at why that happened um, and how it has impacted uh, the identity and uh, how that shaped now, how they are situated in society and in terms of consumption. And just for some listeners who don't know what digital nomad means, can you just say what that, that um, is? Digital nomads are people who choose to work at distance through digital means and as a result are able to very regularly, like every month or so, change uh, where they live. So they can work in uh, Turkey one day, Indonesia the next uh, month and the month after that in Canada, for example. Okay. Well, listen, Leticia, thank you so much uh, for being on Decoding Culture. Thanks for inviting me. And good luck with the up and coming semester. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Decoding Culture podcast. If you want to learn more about other shows on This Is HCD Network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel where you can connect with other human-centered designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.